which suggests that to achieve a behavioral change, make that change easy, attractive, social, and timely. Welcome to the Wait and Speak podcast. I'm your host, Rupir Wait. In today's episode, I speak to Maura Federson. Maura is an economist at Swiss Re, focused on behavioral economics. She develops solutions that enhance prediction and improve the value that insurance offers consumers. Before joining Swiss Re, Maura was a behavioral economist at the UK's Financial Conduct Authority. Maura's background is in economic consulting. At PwC's Strategy and and KPMG's Financial Risk Management Practice, Maura developed economic and behavioral science insights to help organizations position themselves strategically in view of continuous shifts in their environment. And without further ado, here's the interview. Mura, welcome to the Wait and Speak podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. Mura, so I'm very excited to speak to you. Um, I've had behavioral econo- economics on, on my agenda for a while, and it's something that links well with some of the other discussions I've also had. Um, so maybe to set us off with, um, you're a behavioral economist. Can you tell us a bit more? What is behavioral economics? You, you might hear a lot about it in the media. I'm not sure if everyone always know, knows or is clear. What, what, what does it really entail and how is it applied in practice? Yeah, sure. So let me perhaps start here. If you are like me, you might be adamant at times that you're going to eat healthier and work out, really look after your health. And perhaps this is something, especially around New Year, when it's a fresh start. But now in lockdown conditions, this is very hard for a myriad of reasons. And if we have that option, an evening on the couch with pizza and watching series seems much more appealing. Or um, you're thinking about, what would I need to retire at one point? But that calculation is daunting with lots of unknowns. And if you just think of how the current pandemic is systematically changing that calculation with many people facing a great deal of uh, financial uncertainty, it's no wonder that we might be tempted to leave that problem for another day if we can. Or there's a sale on and it might be an end of season sale or Black Friday. Um, Have you ever bought something and the next day you realized you were really swept up in the heat of the moment? Others were shopping too and you were worried about losing out. Uh, Deep down, you might know under different circumstances, you wouldn't have made these purchases. So these are just three examples um, that show how we, we, we aspire to make good choices, uh, including good choices for our future. But sometimes it's really hard to follow through or we don't even know what the right choice would be. And I think these are moments when we are deeply human because we are not unemotional, perfectly self-controlled, rational robots with computer-like processing capabilities. And a science that tries to get to the bottom of how we truly tick as human beings needs to account for our psychology and understand how, how do we make decisions in the heat of the moment? Decisions that would be influenced by our environment, like a shopping frenzy happening around us. And really in times of coronavirus, 
where some of us might feel tempted to stockpile, for example, it's all the more important to understand what role our psychology plays in addition to the economics of decision-making. My background is in economics, and I think economics is extremely powerful. But I do think economics is most powerful when it acknowledges that as humans, we are not like Homo economicus, uh, that perfectly rational, self-controlled, decision-making robot that has featured in the field of economics for a while. And also, we are not entirely the opposite of that either, because as humans, we are smart and driven. But we do use mental shortcuts that make our lives easier. And um, unfortunately, they can lead to snap judgments that can lead us the wrong way. So uh, we're driven by emotion and immediate desires, a little bit like Homo, Homer Simpson rather than Homo <laughs> economicus. Um, and we should consider all that when we're making sense of how we tick as human beings. And this is really where behavioral economics can help. Behavioral economics is a new field in economics that combines insights from economics, psychology, and neuroscience to offer deeper insights into how as human beings we make decisions. Interestingly, the idea that insights from psychology are key to help us understand decision-making has been around for a while and was, was not least propagated by the father of modern economics, Adam Smith. Now, behavioral economics as a new domain has gained a lot of momentum. Daniel Kahneman and Richard Taylor have both won a Nobel Prize in economics and both in public and private sector organizations across the world, there is an increasing recognition that behavioral economics offers useful tools to encourage behavior change. And the applications range from the typical pub public policy challenge, like encouraging citizens to pay their taxes, or it can involve businesses trialing new ways to engage with their customers. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I've, I've picked up on a number of things that, that came out in your comments, Maura. Um, I think the mm -hmm. one thing is definitely obviously obvious from, from the name behavioral economics. It's about behavior, um, but it, it's also linked to the psychology. I think what stood out is we, we often have good intentions, but how can we move from our good intentions to actually implementing those good intentions? And I think the other issue is obviously habits. Um, how can you make a habit of, uh, or it's linked to this kind of, how can you establish good habits and, and have, um, you know, because ingrain those habits that are good to, to follow through. Um, and then I think it's a, it's a extension of the, you know, the base, basic economics that we're all, all familiar, or if you've done a course in economics, you'll be familiar with. Um, as you've rightly said, um, it brings in those, thought, uh, the, the thinking tools of psychology. Um, and then obviously, um, how can we make better decisions? You've touched on decision making. So I think it's about behavior, th thinking about how we think and how we make decisions. Um, and, and, and it can be quite a useful tool. I think you've, you've mentioned some of the prominent names in the field. Um, do you want to maybe just uh, give us a bit more background? How did how did the, the field evolve and where we are now? I, I guess we're seeing it a lot more these days. 
um, or we, we've just become a, a lot more aware of, of it? Yes, so behavioral economics has emerged through the work of Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky. So they worked together for many years and explored in depth how cognitive biases and illusions influence our judgment and decision making. And they found that departures from perfect rationality, so um, exactly how we differ from Homo economicus, these departures can be anticipated and specified. And this partnership is beautifully described in, in a book called The Undoing Project by Michael Lewis, for anyone who's curious to learn more about how these two minds came together to create this whole new domain in economics. Now, their influence, the work of their influence has been immense, not only in economics, where, as you're saying, behavioral economics is now a standard part of the curriculum, but their reach extends to other fields in social science and medicine, law, and business and public policy as well. So perhaps to look at how behavioral economics has been spreading over the years, one key milestone is how behavioral economics was systematically introduced into public policy. And a key milestone here is the establishment of the nudge unit in the UK government. So the nudge unit, officially called the Behavioral Insights Team, has shown that behavioral economics can um, achieve lots of benefits, including, for example, helping governments with tax collection. So there's a really well-known early study in their work where they showed that sending people letters using social norms and personalized to reflect where people lived had a remarkably positive impact on tax debt payments compared to the previous version of the letter. So the updated letter contained a behaviorally informed message along the lines of Nine out of 10 people with a debt like yours in your local area pay their tax on time. And this message prompted 83% of letter recipients to respond compared to the 68% achieved by using the previous version of the letter. So that 22% relative improvement, if rolled out across the UK, was estimated to free up collection resources capable of generating an additional 30 million pounds of extra revenue annually. So this comparatively small tweak in the letter led to a large revenue gain. Now, behavioral economics is also being embraced by regulators. So uh, the Financial Conduct Authority, as an example, the UK's financial conduct regulator, is adopting an approach to regulation that is informed by behavioral science. And maybe to share one example of their work, um, the FCA conducted research finding that consumers can make large, large savings in bank charges, up to 25% in some cases, 
if they received timely text messages informing them that they are about to go into overdraft or have insufficient funds for a scheduled payment. But what, what drives these text messages to work or not? Well, firstly, the question is whether these alerts are enabled by default or whether you're putting it on the consumer to manually enable them. And surprisingly, when consumers need to set up these text alerts, only about 8% actually do this. So there are many beneficiaries that might lose out. And so the FCA decided from December last year onwards, banks have to automatically send these text messages to all eligible customers unless the customer has actively opted out. And then another key factor here is the timing. So if you think of a fuel warning light, an alert that comes too late, well, that's use useless. You've already run out of yeah. petrol. But equally, an alert that comes too early may also fail to prompt action because, well, maybe I can go a bit longer. At least that's what you might be thinking. So the solution here is to, to apply a just-in-time alert um, because it essentially means as you're going into red, you get the alert and um, you know you need to do something. Ho hopefully you can move some um, savings around. Um, and in that way, you, you um, avoid having to incur those charges. So that is a, another example. We've had two examples from the UK, but the use of behavioral economics in public and private sector is really growing in developed markets and emerging market economies alike. And this is also really important because behavior change is contextual and local. What works in one environment is not necessarily generalizable to other environments. And that's why it's very valuable to conduct trials on the ground to anticipate what interventions will work and which won't. And, and perhaps as a last point on this, you were talking about how behavioral, the, the prominence of behavioral economics is growing. Um, and I think one reason is that pr practitioners in a number of fields are discovering that this is a powerful approach to understanding and influencing behavior, which they can incorporate into their own work. So it's really behavioral science plus. So behavioral science plus finance. Um, how do you approach a, your investment strategy, keeping psychology in mind. It's um, behavioral science plus digital. It's all about behaviorally informed user experience, user interface design. How do you build engaging digital products? Um, it's behavioral science plus data science. Uh, can we use that to design really personalized behavioral interventions that are designed just right for you. And maybe they're even deployed automatically. Um, it's behavioral science plus the workplace. So people science, How? Uh, what is the science of making employees happier and more productive at work? So there I could go on. <laughs> uh, there are a few areas that are 
not either completely or at least partially concerned with human behavior. So I, I think it's no wonder that um, behavioral economics and behavioral science are just growing by leaps and bounds. No, you gave some really good examples. Um, and I think there's a, uh, there's a number of key insights in, in your overview, a very good overview. I think starting off with, with the idea of nudging, um, it's, it's, it links back to our introduction of how can we get people to move from good intentions to uh, actually doing those, um, you know, acting upon those good intentions. Like you said, also um, a, a key point was um, if, if around the banking notifications, if they if customers had to select that themselves, um, it was less effective than the banks just simply automatically sending out those notifications. And then the other point you mentioned was obviously timing. Uh, you need to balance um, these interventions at the right time for them to be effective. Um, and then obviously, uh, from from these examples that you've mentioned, there's obvious benefits for the individuals themselves, but I think also for, for broader society, there can be great benefits um, from these types of policies um, with the right type of, of you know goal setting. And of course, the other big point you made is context. I, I like that idea that comes up in my discussions a lot is how incredibly important is the context that you're working, uh, working in uh, and working with. Um, but then just another kind of a last question before we go, go on, on to some other um, points is, obviously, you need to be careful when you, when you um, as a policymaker, the, um, nudge nudge people uh, or in whatever context it may be um, you know you want to create a good impact or good behavior but what are some of the broader considerations um, because I think you actually spoke to it in in in, in speaking about uh, kind of lab experiments and and just doing some testing before you would uh, typically just implement a behavioral policy rather do some some homework and see what what, what really happens in practice um, just to have those the, the broader ethical consideration. Yeah, so the ethical considerations are crucial here because behavioral economics is a powerful tool. So it's important to use it responsibly and ethically because like perhaps like a technology, it can be used for good or for bad. And this is a big topic in behavioral science and behavioral economics. So many people have been thinking about this and there are perhaps three sources of guidance that can be really useful here. For example, one is um, a book by one of the founding fathers of behavioral economics, Cass Sunstein, who wrote The Ethics of Influence. Um, then we've got a model called For Good. It is all about how do you make sure you nudge for good, uh, which was developed by researchers at University College Dublin, and they brought together a lot of thinking on ethics in behavioral science. And then lastly, there's a great practitioner's guide in the behavioral scientists ethics checklist. So those, those three sources, I think, can be really useful to consult here. But um, you're probably asking, well, what could be some of the principles that can help us navigate the ethics of behavioral research? And I, I think there could be maybe four to emphasize. Um, and one is the alignment in interests. So with a piece of behavioral science research, with a behavioral science intervention, 
Are we able to pursue the interests of the company, the researchers and participants? Are these interests aligned? Or are we seeing that there's some participants that are um, that will be worse off, in which case this is not an attractive research project or behavioral intervention? Then we've got the idea of transparency. So um, is, is the research process transparent to participants? And very closely linked to that is then the ease of opt-out. Uh, opt so can participants easily opt out of the study? They are finding out this is what the study is about, and then they can decide, well, do I want to take part in this or do I not want to take part in this? And then maybe as a fourth point to pull out, uh, the question around data privacy and security. So when conducting this type of research, do we have a data management plan that protects the privacy and anonymity of our participants? So, so those are some of the questions that are relevant. And definitely the ethical guidelines should be truly embedded uh, in, in whatever behavioral science practitioners do. Okay, that's excellent. Maura, then moving on to your own work um, in the insurance industry, could you tell us a bit more about how you apply um, your behavioral economic skills in, in the insurance industry? Yes, sure. So you mentioned earlier this point about really finding out on the ground um, what people uh, really care about and what what will truly uh, drive their behavior. So perhaps to, to give a bit more insight in terms of the approach that we've been using, let's uh, perhaps start by comparing the merits of two approaches to learning about consumers. The one is a traditional consumer research approach and the other one involves behavioral economics trials. So for example, if you're looking to develop and market a new insurance product, or you want to improve people's current experience with the insurance products they hold, for example, their claims exper experience, a traditional way to go about this would be to rely on consumer research surveys and focus groups. So the idea is to ask consumers, what would you like? What matters to you? and then to design the product with that in mind. This is very useful, but it's not enough. The reason is that people's thoughts and intentions are often not a reliable predictor of their future behavior. And sometimes they do not fully reflect our preferences either. Plus, behaviors are highly context dependent. So an approach that is effective in one scenario may not yield the same impact elsewhere. So to truly know what works and what doesn't, insurers should test, learn, and adapt. And this experimental approach is now much easier. So much is happening digitally. But digital platforms aren't the only opportunity for testing. Um, the letters are an option, the letters we talked about earlier, we've got forms and call scripts that can all be improved in this way. Um, and what does this actually look like in practice? Maybe I can share an example. 
Uh, we've got one example where a UK life insurer found that doctors were taking a fairly long time to respond to requests for medical information. In the context of critical illness cover, the response time was 33 days on average. And <laughs> the behavioral economics intervention was an application of anchoring. So the message at the top of the form read, did you know our fastest GPs return these forms in as few as three days? Could you do the same? And what followed was a 16% relative improvement in the proportion of responses received back in less than 30 days. And in a similar example, there were handwritten post-it notes stuck on the request to doctors to return medical reports. And the salience of that and the personalization at play helped to generate a 33% relative improvement in doctors returning forms within 10 days. So all of sure. that ultimately made a big difference and most importantly for policyholders. So that's one of the examples of how behavioral economics can help in an insurance context, but the applications are really wide ranging and can help at any point in the insurance value chain. Now that, that's a really great example. And, and you mentioned anchoring. I want to touch on that in the next, uh, on a follow-up point, um, but just something else that came to mind. You, you talked about surveys and how, you know, you might respond in one way in a specific survey, and then that doesn't line up with your intention. So, uh, for example, if you conduct a willingness to pay survey, um, someone might be, willing, might be willing to pay X amount for something, but in practice, um, they won't really do it. And, and I was thinking in that, in that sense, um, big data is obviously also a source or a, a resource for, for uh, practitioners in behavioral economics. Um, you know, as, as a data source beyond just looking at data you would typically get from, from consumer surveys, but looking at the actual behavioral data, um, I think the, that could be quite useful. Um, is that something mm -hmm. that you're involved with? So firstly, I completely agree that um, we don't always follow through on our actions. So that example earlier that I mentioned where we have these good intentions to um, eat well and exercise more, but when it actually comes down to it, we sometimes struggle to follow through and that's called the intention action gap. And so a big question in behavioral economics is, how can we help people actually achieve their goals? And specifically when it comes to being healthier, which of course is very relevant in the insurance space as well, um, uh, their behavioral economics can be powerful. And especially then if you match it with the data, there are enormous advances in terms of um, the, the availability of data. If you look, for example, at, at wearables, so the, the watches that we're wearing and how much data they're collecting about us, um, if we can use that data in a way to help people achieve their goals in terms of fitness and eating well, um, I think then that would have been a case of behavioral economics for good. Mm, definitely. Okay. And, and Maura, then just more in a broader sense, you've touched on some of the key kind of ideas. Um, is there a specific um, 
kind of a mental model or specific tools that, that behavioral economists use. Um, obviously, you've mentioned anchoring as one one thing in heuristics. Um, could you maybe just give us a bit of an overview of kind of how how do you, how does a behavioral economist think about these things? Um, and obviously, the goal of doing good. Yes, there are so many models. There are so many models that we can use to structure our approach. There's dual systems theory. This idea that there's system one very fast and instinctive thinking and system two, slow and deliberate thinking. We've got mind space, we've got basic, we've got combi. There are, there are lots of models around, but one that I think is particularly useful, especially when you're on the go, is a, a model called EAST. Um, it's a model developed by the Behavioral Insights team, which suggests that to achieve a behavioral change, Make that change easy, attractive, social, and timely. So the text alerts example I spoke about earlier, that's all about just in time, really speaking to people when at the time when it really matters for them. Um, the social norms that uh, was relevant in the tax collection example, that speaks to the principle of making something social. And then also this idea around the text alerts again about um, the default option being that you receive the text alert rather than manually having to sign up, which who knows how much effort that is. That is the principle of making something easy. And so East, I, I think, is a, is a fantastic um, model to, uh, to apply to really um, any behavioral change we are looking to achieve. But at the same time, there are so many models and they do offer different perspectives. So the ideal would be to pick a model that best reflects the problem that you're trying to solve. Mm. So you have a framework of models, um, mm -hmm. and and again, I guess the context will will determine how can you best use which model is best for for your specific context, and perhaps also um, using more than one model to gain different insights. Yes, yes, um, depending on the problem. Yes, yeah, and and more. So, so obviously, there's a lot of wonderful resources, but for our listeners out there that are just thinking about behavioral economics in their own life and just their own daily decision making, what would, what would you think is a good good place to start to, to become more aware and to learn more about mm -hmm. the, these um, thinking tools, if I can call it that? And then perhaps for someone that's really interested, you know, you know, to get more more training in this area, but perhaps in career wise, what, what opportunities are, are there in that space? Yes, so there's a vast and growing amount of resources in the space, which I think is very exciting. We've got East as a as an as an easy model to get started. But then for people who want to dive a little bit deeper into the subject matter, there are really three classic behavioral economics books that I think are great to get started. Um, so Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, Nudge by uh, Richard Taylor and Cass Sunstein, and Predictably Irrational by Dan Ariely. So I think these are great classic behavioral economics books. And then there's a, there are lots of great resources on the web as well. 
So, for example, the behavioral scientist is a site that features great articles from behavioral scientists. So you can find out what the current thinking is. Then we've got a website called behavioraleconomics.com which publishes an annual behavioral economics guide, which contains lots of applied examples and case studies from across the industry. And then we've got Habit Weekly, which is a fantastic roundup of emerging trends and key resources in behavioral science. So you can subscribe and get a, a weekly uh, email from them. And then in terms of podcasts, there are lots of podcasts that are completely dedicated to the topic of behavioral economics and behavioral science. And there are so many that come to mind, but maybe just to mention a few, we've got Behavioral Grooves, Choiceology with Katie Milkman, The Brainy Business, Brainfluence, The Human Risk Podcast, Freakonomics. There are many, many podcasts and I love listening to them. And there are also many more as well. So I think that could be a, a good way to get into the subject matter. And then you were mentioning training. Um, so I think a fantastic online training that I, I personally highly recommend is available on EDX called Behavioral Economics in Action. Um, and it's presented by Dilip Soman at the University of Toronto Rotman School of Management. That offers a really great foundation and toolkit. And then for those who, who really want to pursue this uh, in, in depth and um, conduct potentially their own research, there are many masters and PhD programs that are um, coming up across the world at many universities. So, of course, that um, path is also there. Fantastic. No, I think it's, it's wonderful to hear about all these resources. Um, so there's lots of options out there. Um, Maura, but it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Um, it was great to have you on the show and, and, and thank you so much. I'd love to have you back in future and I think we can still talk a lot more um, about this exciting field. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Rakuya. I really enjoyed our conversation. And that's a wrap for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time, happy listening.